as a freshman at Bradley University, I was invited to take uh, an advanced course in Western civilization that was co-taught by two professors, one of whom became a very good mentor and friend of mine during my two years there at Bradley, and the other was a notorious curmudgeon. So well known, in fact, that he had a reputation that preceded him all over the Midwest. And I remember him quite clearly. He always loved to teach at the front of the classroom, not sitting on a stool or a chair, but on the table, sort of hunched forward, leaning forward with his round face and his jowls sort of looking at us with a little bit of grumpiness and sort of talking like this, you know. And sometimes he would teach to the floor, and we would all be sort of leaning forward to hear what he was getting at. The one thing I will always remember, it was the day we were studying the supposed fall of the Roman Empire, and he looked up at us, and we all waited with bated breath to see what would come out of his mouth that day, and he said, the Roman Empire didn't fall. We are the Romans, he said. Half the class, as I recall, said, Baloney, we're not the Romans. We're not imperialists. I thought, are we free or not? But, you know, that teaching has stuck with me over the years. Sort of the droll way he said it. Sort of sat there and has rolled around in my head and my heart. (laughs) as we've moved through various experiences since those days, all the way back in 1992. My goodness, I am getting a few gray hairs now. But in any case, there was something very true about what he said. We are the inheritors of the Roman legacy. What does that mean? Well, we're like the Romans in that we like to count heads. Some historians have said that's the only thing the Romans were really good at, was counting things. We are the Romans in that we really take seriously the status of the individual based on their wealth and based on their place in society. We are the Romans in that we tend to obsess with things like economic power and military power. And if you need any more evidence than this, just look at what happened this week when a tin pot dictator in Northeast Asia decided he wasn't getting enough attention. And so he went about and had a little nuclear test and got our attention. And the UN went into paroxysms, the United States went into paroxysms, and all of Northeast Asia started to quiver. The only reason he would need to do that is because we have the power and he thinks he doesn't. Okay? Hmm. Think about the way our society is structured and the way we think about ourselves and the walk of the world. And you start to get this picture that I think my professor was probably right. We are the Romans. We still do a lot of what they did in their society. And then it brought me to today's gospel about Jesus' baptism in the River Jordan. And it suddenly dawned on me, we like to think of our baptism as a private and personal 
spiritual event in our lives, as though you can separate spiritual from everything else. But in fact, Jesus' baptism and John's activity in the River Jordan are not personal and private, but they are profoundly political. Who ever thought of your baptism as a political statement or a political event? Think about that for a minute. Sometimes when we are going through our lectionary, it is helpful to look at the verses that the architects of the lectionary omitted. Not the ones they included, but the ones they omitted. And in fact, there is a redaction of today's reading from Luke. There are verses taken out, which seem at first to have nothing to do with the business at hand, which is Jesus coming to the River Jordan, but in fact have everything to do with it. And they are verses that talk about how John is under the gun, as it were, under the gun of Herod, Herod Antipas. The son of the Herod we heard about at Christmas time, you remember him? Also known as Herod the Great. He was great for a couple of reasons. One of them was he had this huge building program throughout Judea built some of the structures that are still in place, rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem. Wonderful, you might think, for a moment, until you also realize he was also known as Herod the Great because he was probably one of the most violent and bloody rulers of his day. You could see how he might have inspired someone later in history like Henry VIII. You know, he was known to kill members of his own family quite merrily and uh, execute rabbis and do all kinds of things. Herod the Great had come under the imprimatur of the Romans and was instituted by the Roman Senate as the new ruler of Judea. And he quite clearly, even though he was Edomaean, not really from Judea, and certainly not part of the Hasmonean line, all these names, right? But Hasmoneans were a long-standing dynasty of rulers that went back to the Maccabees. Do you remember them? In the second century BC, they had overthrown the Greek Empire, the Seleucids, and Antipas came and overthrew the last of their kings. Then he married a Hasmonean princess to ostensibly give himself legitimacy and set up a dynasty worthy of a special showtime soap opera. So Antipas is his son and maybe a little bit less bloodthirsty and successful than his father, but by this time the kingdom's been divided four ways, so there you have it. But Antipas went and he married his half-brother's wife. See why it would make a great showtime soap opera? John the Baptist is one of the few who's bold enough to call him out on this. And so John's days are numbered. And you can understand why then John goes out to the edge of the wilderness and gets busy because he may not be around tomorrow. Coming to him are people who are under the heel of empire, people who have no standing in society, either Jewish or Roman. And along with them are coming spies from Jerusalem to check out John and see if they can trip him up. And then comes this peasant from Galilee, 
who Luke tells us is John's cousin. Now we could pause right here and say, you know what? None of these folks are very bright. Jesus wasn't educated, at least not by our standards. And John had upset the local ruler to the point where probably his neck was on the line, both literally and figuratively. What is baptism for then, and who is it for? Here's another provocative thing, worthy of my Western Civ professor. Maybe baptism is for losers. Think about that for a about that. The great symbolism of John at the Jordan is John standing at that border that the people of Israel had crossed over into the promised land in that mythic story of Jewish tradition. There is a sense that the people who are coming to him are looking not only to start over, but to be liberated as their ancient ancestors were from a life under the heel of empire, a life of slavery. Slavery to somebody else's whim, somebody else's standards, somebody else's understanding of who is great and who is small. Be liberated so that they might be free. And in fact, Our spiritual ancestors, the first Christians, understood this notion of baptism very clearly as a recapitulation of that Exodus event, of being freed from the bounds of slavery and the structures of empire. So radical was their notion that they said strange things like, Jesus is Lord, and some of you will remember my favorite subtext to that. The implication is the emperor is not, which in that day was dangerous. So what are we saying when we embrace our baptism? Is it just a private spiritual thing, a nice thing that we do with cooing babies, lovely fonts, and nice words? Or is it something much more profound and radical than that? It says, even in our day, we refuse to be the Romans. Something that would probably drive my Western Civ professor to go cross-eyed. We refuse to be the Romans. We are a people who are reborn, who are truly free, and who look at our status not through the eyes of the world, through the eyes of God. A God who says to this loser from Galilee, you are my son, my beloved. With you, I am well pleased. This has been a sermon podcast from the Episcopal Church of Our Savior, Mill Valley, California. We are a growing, welcoming community for those seeking to deepen their relationship with God and to journey in faith with God's people through the breaking of bread and in service to others in Christ's name. You can reach us by phone at 
1907 or visit us online at OurSaviorNV.org. That's O-U-R-S-A-V-I-O-U-R-N-V for Mill Valley dot O-R-G. We wish you God's peace and we hope to greet you in person very soon.